How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Faith That Shines in the Culture, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. least two ways of getting this wrong. A Christian's place in the civil realm, either they are there to change the world, to reform the government, whatever it may be, or the Christian quietist who says they don't want to sully their hands or their soul dealing with temporal and political matters. But the truth for the Christian who wants to follow what Holy Scripture has to say is different from both of those. Why are Christians required to speak and act in sometimes in the civil realm? And why do we remain quiet when God's Word has nothing to say? Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's the conclusion of our four-part series, Christian Sanctification in the Three Estates, Today, Citizens and Authorities. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa joins us. He is Senior Pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Irvine, California, and author of The Issues, Etc., Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. Dr. Espinosa, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. Always good to be here. What's become of our culture since the days when Alexis de Tocqueville could observe, and I quote him, that the morality of Christianity is everywhere the same? Well, since that time, we have become increasingly pluralistic in such a way that as we've tried to tame the situation through legislation and the government, there was, since Tocqueville, a growing concern about the separation of church and state. Now, when that concern was first clearly addressed by Jefferson, at that point, Jefferson's goal was not to eliminate faith from the public square but was rather to appreciate the pluralism to the extent as to not permit any singular sect or form of religion take predominance over the others. And this is true as we see the evolution of the United States of America. At one point, Protestants were very concerned about the influence of the Roman Catholics in the U.S. government. So this sort of thing continued to perpetuate in trying to find balance. But again, the original intent in pointing out the distinction between church and state was never to remove faith from the public square. And as a matter of fact, if we study our history, we see some amazing statements made by some of our leaders over the years about the importance of making sure that faith continues to influence the state realm. I love this quote from President Ronald Reagan back in 1984. Reagan said, the truth is politics and morality are inseparable, and as morality's foundation is religion, religion and politics are necessarily related. We need religion as a guide. We need it because we're imperfect, and our government needs the church because only those humble enough to admit they're sinners can bring a democracy the tolerance it requires in order to survive. Amazing quote by a president of the United States, and yet, What's happened as the pluralism continued to mount, Todd, is that relativism and secularism continue to mount, and as such, began to put more and more attention upon the general concept of church and state to the extent that in 1979, Supreme Court Justice Hugo L. Black epitomized the landmark Supreme case that year in 79. Not only did he cite Jefferson, But he added that the quote, this is Hugo Black, wall must be kept high and impregnable. We cannot approach the slightest breach, unquote. And that wall he referred to is the current wall separating church and state more than ever before in the history of the United States. Secularism has mounted. 
and it has never been more pervasive. And this is what has changed since the time of Tocqueville's observations. How do Christianity and the state interact? Well, as I mentioned before in the uh, early chapters of the book, it was important to define the relationship between the estates. What I'm putting forth is that the family is the character of the nation, but that family is guarded by the church, which is the conscience of the family, and by extension, the conscience of the nation. By the time you get to the state, uh, the nation, with its government, you have the outworking, the results of that character and conscience that the church influences. And where the family is permitted to decline, the church no longer bearing influence upon the state, the state begins to run amok. So the relationship that's supposed to be there is that we continue to need the light of Christ upon the state so that the state would ever protect and stand for the proper treatment of persons. If we're serious about all men being created as equal, we'll be serious about protecting the family and protecting the church. So we in the church relate to the estate of the state by seeking to be a, a proactive light upon the state. And the state's role relationship back to us is to protect the church estate and the family estate. This is a relationship that is indispensable. And as soon as we forget that these estates are intricately related to each other, then we lose our way. Many of our fellow Lutherans are functionally quietists. They consider the civil realm something that we should have little to say about, much less act in it. How do you respond? It's important to step back and remind ourselves, though it may be unpleasant to do so, that everyone who functions in the state brings a total worldview to the table, which includes a form of religion or spirituality about life. So if the Christian is reasoning to himself, and, and I would say in a misguided way, in an unfortunate way, that I should be quiet because the state is all about our objective functioning in society and has nothing to do with faith or religion, we're really kidding ourselves. We're kind of living under a mushroom because what others are bringing to the table, whether they're atheists or agnostic or Satanists or whatever they may be, they always bring with themselves that which comprises a total person that is a spirit and a religiosity that influences the secular realm. So we should therefore reason that I am simply being a good citizen to be responsible, to be sure that my worldview, that Christ has called me to proclaim in all of my life, in all three estates, is also properly represented. So we go forth in such a way as to say, look, if you want to persecute me, so be it, whatever. I, I know where I'm going. I'm safe in the hands of God. But what happens in the state affects my neighbor. And because it affects my neighbor, I have a moral and spiritual obligation, a faith obligation to speak up for those who need to be spoken up for. Therefore, I must go forward. So if you threaten the life of the unborn or recently born, then I, as a Christian, must defend my neighbor. I must serve as a citizen to influence the government to protect the innocent and the helpless. This isn't a radical activism. It is a responsible activism. If you threaten the fabric of holy marriage and you compromise the meaning of marriage as between a man and a woman, then I have an obligation to defend the family. If someone wants to permit lawlessness in society, then I have a call as a Christian to shine the light of Christ to fight for right policing and a responsible justice system. And if, God forbid, the state itself tries to tell the church to keep its mouth shut and to back away, then I have to remember what Peter proclaimed back in Acts chapter 5, 29, that we must obey God rather than men, and we will not permit evil to reign. And I think it's important that we brace ourselves for those who say, you know, uh, at the end of the day, what you're really espousing is an inappropriate admixture of faith with the culture. And that is an inappropriate characterization of our position. And we can come back and defend our position with four points that I recommend in this book, Faith That Shines in the Culture. And number one is the separation of church and state has never stood for the separation of faith from the public square. 
nor separation from interaction with politics. And secondly, no one can claim they are exempt from religious conviction impacting the worldview, as I was saying before. If you're pointing the finger at me for bringing in my worldview, remember those four fingers pointing back at you because you inevitably do the same thing. Even if you claim to be an atheist, you bring with yourself your own religious convictions about God, and they affect your morality. They affect your ethical system. And thirdly, we defend our position, knowing that in many cases, the, the controversies that we encounter in the cultural realm are fundamentally moral and related to natural law. And whenever we talk about natural law, we define that, Todd, as that which consists of moral principles governing human behavior that can be recognized independently even of the Holy Bible. We just know in, instinctively it's wrong to torture babies. We know instinctively it's wrong to betray a friend. There are certain things that are just self-evident in the natural realm, and the Christian should defend these things. And fourthly, the spiritual state is always in play. I need to be in the world to show the love of Christ, even for my enemies. And I have a responsibility to, uh, to emulate, imitate St. Paul, for example, who sought common ground even with the Athenians at the Areopagus, so that I am ready to give an answer for the hope that is within me. How does our culture demonstrate what you mentioned a few minutes ago, excessive individualism? Well, it's all over the place. It demonstrates it by seeking self-fulfillment at all costs. Back in Ecclesiastes, uh, the wisdom of God's word is brought forth by uh, Solomon, King Solomon, uh, that whoever loves money uh, will never have enough, will never be satisfied. And this is the problem with missing the one thing needful that brings us identity and fulfillment, the Lord Jesus Christ, and knowing him through his word in the sacrament. If we jettison that from our lives, what is left is unsatiable desire. It's our conducting that grand experiment that Solomon did in Ecclesiastes where he tried learning, he tried pleasure, he tried amassing riches, on and on and on down this long list of all the things that could possibly bring him some kind of sense of fulfillment and nothing worked. And that's put there for us to realize that as long as we insist on our hyper-individualism, we are actually dying. We're dying in such a way as we are going further and further away from the one, the only one who can bring true identity, true peace, godliness with contentment. And it's exactly the reason why Christians need to be salt and light in the world today. So our Lord Jesus Christ, in the way he teaches us about sanctification, I mentioned it early on, extra nos continues to apply, not just for our justification, Christ coming to us to save us, but Christ is also our sanctification, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30. And he teaches us that this too is outward. You have to look at your neighbor, which means you have to get out of your individualism. And the more you look at your neighbor, nah, now, now I know how to live. It is to serve my neighbor, and I'm saved from hyper-individualism. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is our guest. It's the conclusion of our four-part series on Christian sanctification in the three estates. We're talking about citizens and authorities, and we'll discuss Christians as examples in civil affairs next. How can conspiracy theories become a form of idolatry? I've written a column for the latest issues, etc., a journal titled, Yes, Elvis is Dead, But God is in His Heaven, a pastoral response to conspiracy theories. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Julie Stegemeyer writes about her path from Methodism to Lutheranism. The free online issues, etc., journal, issuesetc.org. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Your lifeline to the Lutheran worldview, 
You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is our guest. We're concluding our series with him, Christian Sanctification in the Three Estates. Talk about citizens and authorities. Dr. Espinosa, talk about the power of the Christian example in civil affairs. It's really important that while we recognize in our uh, biblical Lutheran theology that our sanctification is that which is wrought by Christ, gifted to us the moment we are justified, we're set apart, we are holy in the eyes of God. At the same time, it's not an either or, but a both and. As you know, I'm fond of dualities in Scripture. We've talked about that before. There's also the opportunity to mature in the faith. One of the values in seeking to grow in the faith, mature in the faith, is that we appreciate that we are also to be imitators of God. And so years ago, when the big fad thing was going on about the bracelets, you know, the uh, what would Jesus do bracelets, we were wise to warn people to make sure you don't fall into a legalism or a, a self-done sanctification. You know, we're warning people appropriately. At the same time, we do maintain that we are also, having been sanctified and set apart in Christ, to be imitators of God. And so those, those examples are part and parcel of what Christ is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he calls us to be salt and light. The context there is all about the morality that he's talking about. And people need to see that in this world today because we're inundated and in seeing all the other stuff, the lifestyles that enter into darkness that are destructive. And we think it's commonplace. We think it's normal. We think it's the way it is. So we're just going to go along with it. No. We are called to be contrarians to that evil tide, to bring light where there's darkness. So Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And this is not to contradict what he says elsewhere about not letting the left hand know what your right hand is doing. Some people think that's a contradiction, but it's all about what's going on in the heart. If your goal is to give glory to God, to serve your neighbor outwardly, you're not about self-aggrandizement. You're not about your pride. You're about doing what God has called you to do in your vocations within the state estate. And if that is your preoccupation, you know that God is going to use your hard work and your faithfulness to your calling to be something that people notice, not to give glory to you, but to give glory to God, to be mindful of why we're here, because our work takes us out of ourselves when we're faithful in our vocations. So talk about what you say is a paradox or duality of the Christian in the estate of the state. I had mentioned before, you know, you have the three estates that are very clear, family, church, and state that we talk about in this book. But then I also mentioned there is in our sacred biblical theology, a fourth estate that is not alongside the three, but which permeates all three. And that is the estate of Christian love, the spiritual estate. And that estate of Christian love, which permeates, is always active in such a way as to emphasize agape love, that commitment to do what God has called me to do, to serve my neighbor, certainly in unique ways, when I consider the unique context of family versus church versus state. 
when we appreciate the varied expressions of agape love in how they're qualified or how they're expressed in the various estates, by the time you get to the state estate, it can be sometimes challenging to discern that that love is active. And it is active, though, when a Christian, for example, is a peace officer or a soldier or a judge. And in order to be faithful to God's calling to defend, to convict, to do things that can appear to be very, very harsh, are things that must be done, not only to honor God according to the vocation he's given to you, but to properly serve the state for the sake of people, to curb evil, and to stop that which threatens life. Again, the way it plays out can be messy, and as it's being played out, can be viewed as something that is anti-Christian or not, you know, not very loving, because it doesn't appear to be loving, especially through our very oftentimes sinful and pietistic filters. But if we are doing what God has called us to do, it is extraordinarily loving, because this is how God intends to care for the state of state. So when, when Luther was describing this duality, he reminded us that in these instances, the Christian doesn't even appear to be a Christian. It's as, as if they're, they're living as two different persons. But he says this simply because he's describing what it looks like to us from the outside. He affirms, in fact, that faith is always in play, so that in this duality, God is always working. Now, this particular duality is revealed because the Christian is not only an extension of the Lord's proper work, as we refer to it, his love and mercy, but also an extension of his alien work marked by judgment and stringency. <laughs> Someone might even ask, well, was Jesus ever like that? Do we see in our compassionate Savior, Jesus Christ, who calls us as our good shepherd? who gives us rest, that kind of stringency in him? Well, the answer is we most certainly do. In John chapter 2, we have the account of the Passover of the Jews being at hand. Jesus goes into Jerusalem, and as you know the account, Todd, in the temple he finds those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, the money changers sitting there. And the scriptures say, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. In that instance, Jesus was doing the most loving thing he could possibly have done in the state realm. In that particular time and place and context in the state realm, he had to judge sin in broad daylight and show zeal against that which was dishonoring God. So, yeah, it, it's important that we understand that agape love will be expressed in a vast variety of ways depending on the estate. And sometimes, from the outside looking in, it seems as if the Christian is two different people, but in truth, they're just one, just one Christian living properly in all three estates. Why must Christians speak out like Jesus does, and act like he does on the issues of life, marriage, and children? Because these are, first of all, commanded by God. We are to be the salt and light. There's just no getting around that. I mean, this is, if you want to know what sanctification does, I mean, we can wax eloquently about the theology, about being set apart and all that good stuff, but it's got to do. There is a faith that's followed by works. They're inextricable. They're inseparable and faith without works is dead. And Christ says, this is what the works look like. <laughs> you know, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. But in the realm of these moral questions, the salt, as it has been explicated by wonderful theologians over the centuries, is as a preservative of that which is salutary and right and good in our midst. It's also a stinger for that which is trying to come in and corrupt, like a sin-sick disease that that's boiling over and it hurts when you apply the salt and says there's a problem here that has to be fixed 
And specifically, you step back and go, what does God himself emphasize about what must be addressed? Darkness is important for us to point out we must resist. But if we stop there, that can seem to be a very abstract idea. When it's fleshed out, God is clearly showing us what must be addressed. Well, when it comes to the second table of the law, those laws that have to do with our relationship with our neighbor, the fourth commandment says authority, proper government, proper authority must be addressed. And that starts with looking at the home. How do we perceive parents? How do we treat them? How do we respect them? How do parents know their role in society? But it includes the greater state as well, right? We mentioned the policing, the, the government, the legislative, executive branches, every aspect of the world there. And fifth commandment most certainly applies to how we treat the unborn and the newly born and those who are suffering with illnesses and with disabilities, how we're treating the aged. The sixth command goes into sexual purity. These are God's standards for sanctification, Todd. And if we are not addressing those, then our claim to be sanctified is just words without much meaning behind it. How do you respond to those who say that Christian speaking and acting in this way violates the separation of church and state? Those who say that are unfortunately turning a blind eye towards what God himself says about what must happen among his people. We are called to conduct certain acts and responsibilities within our respective vocations. If you're doing what you're supposed to do according to God's will and his word, it is simply inevitable that those who want to rebel against God's word will resist you. And I think it's at the point of resistance that people have a false sense of piety and saying, well, now I'm somehow stirring things up. I'm somehow meddling. I'm upsetting other people. And that that form of conflict inherently implies somehow that I'm supposed to back away and be a quietist. No, all of that is just rationalization to get out of our call and responsibility to be what God has called us to be. So as we are conducting that which must come with sanctification, we have to tell people, look, I have a call. Every call comes with a cross, as we're saying so clearly in this book. Crosses are unpleasant. They represent death. They represent pain. They represent, frankly, what we don't want to do according to the flesh. But Jesus himself said that if anyone would follow him, he must deny himself, take up his cross. And that cross is that cross which assures that we are doing what God has commanded us to do. And you might not like it, but it's something I will do no matter what the world says. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to Issues Etc. It's the conclusion of our four-part series, Christian Sanctification in the Three Estates, with Dr. Alfonso Espinosa, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org, and look for Faith That Shines in the Culture. When we return, he has five imperatives that should govern the Christian's engagement in the third estate. How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Faith That Shines in the Culture, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our study of the book of beginnings, Genesis, with descendants of Ham, descendants of Shem, Tower of Babel, more on Shem, and Terah's family. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. 
Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar, you're listening to Issues Etc. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Is it hard? Yes. Will it challenge you? Absolutely. Is it a blessing from God for you and those you will serve without question? Dr. Lawrence Rast, president of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. The pastoral ministry is all of these things, and that's why Concordia Theological Seminary exists to form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Men from all over the world with a variety of unique backgrounds come to our campus to receive faithful training that will equip them for the challenging but blessed work of serving as pastors in Christ's church. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Christ-Centered Worship Confessional Theology Lutheran Community, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're concluding our series on Christian sanctification in the three estates, family, church, and the civil realm. We're discussing the civil realm today. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is our guest. You say that there are five imperatives that should govern the Christian's engagement with this third estate. What are they? I drew from Wolf and McNally Lentz. Uh, they wrote a, a great book entitled uh, Public Faith in Action out of uh, Brazos Press. I'm going to share with you their, their quote, and then we'll talk about the five points. Each citizen is a member of the sovereign people bound together to a constitution. As a consequence, Christian obedience to political authorities is not merely regulated by a more fundamental obedience to God, but is also compatible with efforts to alter political society's course. Political change is no longer simply a top-down affair but a responsibility of all adult members of the community. So we have to be involved in that, again, that salt and light ministry that's very concerned about not only preserving, but improving the state. So it's always functioning according to God's intention. So they go on to talk about five imperatives that should shape our engagement in the culture as we're living in this third estate of the state. The first one, is that the Christian is called to seek peace in the sense of well-being for the community. That's an important qualifier. It's not peace at all costs. But we are striving to serve the community for its well-being, its holistic health, we might say. And we're willing to work very hard for that and fight for it if need be. Number two, we are called to defend the poor. That is always the call of the Holy Church as we go out into the world. We are to always take into consideration those in need to serve the poor and to defend them, to speak up for them. Number three, we do not act out of fear. We resist fear-based arguments that breed mistrust, hostility, and violence. And we will serve knowing that Christ tells us we have nothing to fear. We are in the palm of God. He is holding us. We will go out, we will be faithful in our vocations without fear. And number four, seek the truth and tell it. That is, we do not ignore racism, ethnic, or religious prejudice. We do not ignore injustice. These things are the epitome of darkness permeating our land. We have to address them responsibly and fight against them. And number five, finally, the greatest imperative in the life of the sanctified Christian, love your neighbors. This is what we do in all cases. Sometimes that love is resisted in many different ways, Todd, but we are committed that just as Christ was compelled in his love for us to give up his very life, that our love is driven by the love of Christ 
and we'll face whatever we have to face because he's the one providing that life to begin with. Why do we need to discuss education in light of the third estate? Education has a vast responsibility. It is responsible for forming people. Both the McNally Lentz also discussed the import of education. They mentioned John Henry Newman, who put it as education itself as a higher word, quote unquote. And the etymology of that Latin word, educatio, suggests rearing or bringing up a child. It isn't so much about acquiring knowledge and skill to succeed in this or that endeavor as it is about cultivating wisdom so as to succeed as a human being. So education was really understood as something that was about the cultivation of a person's soul. It was never just information transfer, but a teacher who not only presented the subject matter, but one who enters into the lives of their students to cultivate the person and the soul, uh, treating the students as God would have us treat them and to draw them out as gifted people with unique vocations in their lives to contribute to the greater society. Education is considered to be one of the great lights within the state estate. Luther talked about this, and when he was explicating the relationship between the government's responsibility to provide for the educational aspect of the citizenry, Luther said, it therefore behooves the city council and the authorities to devote the greatest care and attention to the young, since the property, honor, and life of the whole city have been committed to their faithful keeping. They would be remiss in their duty before God and man if they did not seek its welfare and improvement day and night with all the means at their command. Now, the welfare of a city does not consist solely in accumulating vast treasures building mighty walls and magnificent buildings, and producing a goodly supply of guns and armor, a city's best and greatest welfare, safety and strength, consist rather in it having many able, learned, wise, honorable, and well-educated citizens. And this is why the aspect of the state realm that is education is invaluable to us, Todd. What are the roles of family and church in education? Yeah, indeed. We never reduce the task of education to a school system, but understand that education happens fundamentally within a community of one sort or another. And the most important one, as we put forth earlier in our interviews, is the family itself. Talk about a place where a soul is formed, where a soul is cultivated, where a person is taught. It begins with the responsibility of parents raising their children in the Lord. When we teach them the way to go when they're young, as the Lord promises in Proverbs 22, they will not depart from it. This is also true regarding the church. We know that one of the most important ministries of the church is catechesis. We consider the uh, call to discipleship, the Great Commission to make disciples, what is there? The Holy Sacrament of Baptism and catechesis. Uh, catechesis is the cultivation, the nourishing, the learning of what it means to be a child of God, which is a lifelong enterprise in the church. Catechesis is ongoing. Too often we reduce it to a, a confirmation curriculum and think that when we're confirmed, we've graduated, not by any means. It's a lifelong endeavor. We're always being catechized. We're always growing our knowledge of the Lord. So from those two great schools, if you will, of family and church, we have a better understanding of the total view of all three estates touching upon proper education of the individual uniquely called by God to shine in their family, in their church, and in their local community in the state. Why is objective truth the foundation of good education? Well, without objective truth, then everything else we talk about becomes a form of subjective relativism dependent on a person's own made-up or imagined value system, which doesn't stand on any solid ground but floats in the air 
and at the end of the day doesn't do anyone else any good. C.S. Lewis argued that good education will not stray from the standard that he referred to, a standard he referred to as natural law or traditional morality. He wasn't afraid to use that word traditional. Or first principles of practical reason. And this, Lewis said, is among a series, is not among a series of possible systems of value. If you are truly relying upon objective truth, natural law, traditional morality, there's not a vast variety of possible systems of value. There is an identifiable objective system, singular, of value, system of value. And that objective system comes to be known through the universal objective truth that God has provided through his word and through the natural knowledge of God that also picks up on natural law based on God's creation and based on God's gift of conscience that he gives to all people, Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Lewis warned, therefore, that if any school or teacher involved in this educational task resorts to relativism forsaking objective truth, what will happen is that we will, quote, remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. And he goes on to warn in the abolition of man that if people continue to put their own mastery and power ahead of everything else, untethering themselves from universal truth and universal morals, and if people become their own authority without any other authority, then the final conquest of man will be the abolishing of mankind itself. That was Luther's warning to us. So objective truth is absolutely indispensable as the single most important educational pursuit in the state realm. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is our guest, senior pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California, author of the book, Faith That Shines in the Culture. When we come back, we'll talk about the vocation of a student. Thanks to our listeners, Issues Etc. has operated independently and in the black for 15 consecutive years. Please help us cover our expenses again this year by making a year-end financial gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 Christmas and Epiphany hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for your support at the end of 2023. Our children are always a blessing to us, but not only are we blessed by them, but we have opportunities to bless them as well. Pastor Christopher Nuttleman, in the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, takes up the topic of blessing your children, how to bless them in your home, with the Word of God and prayer. To learn more, pick up your copy of the December issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe or visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., whyforlife.org. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org.
A new recording of the Christmas hymn, All My Heart Again Rejoices, featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. We'll send you this recording and 14 other hymns, plus our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled, three, Answering Objections Against Christianity, for a year-end donation of $250 or more. You can make a secure online gift at issuesetc.org. You can also make a financial contribution by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Thanks for listening, and thanks for including Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. We're talking about citizens and authorities, concluding our series on sanctification in the three estates with Dr. Alfonso Espinosa, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Faith That Shines in the Culture. On the subject of education, what's the vocation of a student? Dr. Scott Ashman puts it this way, as uh, students are mindful of the different P's, which Dr. Ashman refers to. This is uh, Dr. Scott Ashman, Provost, Concordia University, Irvine. Love your parents by taking studying seriously, engaging, because they've invested so much in you. The public supports you in this. Honor the public in this because of their care and support and expectations of you, your peers. To be a student, support other students. How can you be of assistance to your peers? Think of the people you also serve in the past. To the degree that we inherit treasures and traditions and riches from the past, how do we honor that and learn from that? If we read history, how do we love that person who's in the past? Read about them, have an open mind to them, be charitable to their views, put the best instruction on their actions. This prepares you to love the neighbor today too. There's a progeny. What you do today sets you up for what you do tomorrow. Then there's loving your own person. Enrich yourself emotionally, intellectually, and physically. This is a form of the care of the self, and this can bring you great joy to be able to discover God's world and be in your place in it and strengthen others. So far, Dr. Scott Ashman, and in living out these peas, Todd, the student is most definitely living in an invaluable, wonderful, full-time vocation as a student, as they glorify God, and as they serve their neighbor as the light of Christ. How can we often underestimate the light of Christ in the culture? Well, it's because so often we uh, consider everyday life, I'm, I'm kind of putting quotes around that in my head as I say it, everyday life, that thing. <laughs> it's just so ordinary. It's so humdrum. It just seems to be that verification that work is just something, everyday life is just something I'm trying to get, get past so I can get to the weekend and really live and have fun and do all that other stuff. So I think we lose the light of vocation in in the everyday things that we take for granted. So I have a major section uh, in this book, this last chapter, about all the various wonderful callings that are out there, examples from the realm of entertainment. Got to interview a professional actress on the big screen and interview an attorney who is a dedicated man of God who lets his light shine as he serves people in the field of law, a doctor who also confesses the Lord Jesus. By the way, these are all strong Lutheran Christians uh, that are interviewed, and all of them show that their day-to-day activities in the state realm are just chock full of enormous opportunities to shine the light of Jesus Christ as they serve people in Christian love. And in many cases, to stand against that which is wrong, that which is immoral, sometimes risking jobs, their livelihood, to speak for the truth, and experiencing on the other side how God always keeps his promises to provide for his children. So I think one of the things that we're trying to get across here in this particular book is that no matter how you might feel about your day-to-day activity, if it's frustrating, if it's so repetitive as to cause you boredom, 
and you long to just get through it and get by it, stop and remember what God says about everything you do. For the Christian, every calling, every vocation in the state realm is precious in the sight of God. And from before the foundations of the world, God knew he was going to put you there. He's put you there for a reason. We have an opportunity to look at our daily work in a different way, to see God working through us, the light of Christ being applied to those around us. You say that what the Christian does is never just about work, but it's always about the people they serve. What do you mean by that? Well, right. So, you know, work in and of itself is something that is designed to contribute to the greater society and community. It is inherently something that is conducted so that other people would somehow benefit from it. And this is why we view work differently than the world does. Luther saw work as a form of worship. This is something that Luther elaborated upon from uh, the American Edition, Volume 2. All godly people have some definite times at which they pray, meditate on holy things, and teach and instruct their people in religion. Nevertheless, even when they're not doing these things and are attending either to their own affairs or to those of the community in accordance with their calling, they remain in good standing and have this glory before God that even their seemingly secular works are a worship of God and obedience well-pleasing to God. So even when we're doing these things that can seem mundane or that appear irrelevant, we are worshiping God. And if we are worshiping God, that worship is always translated into a light that shines. Remember the very first time we got together, Todd, to talk about the first interview, we talked about the relationship between the vertical call, Christ upon us, his word, holy baptism, putting us into Christ. So his light shines upon us. And then horizontally, we go out as the light of Christ emanating through us and all that we do in our daily calls in the three estates. Well, that worship of God, which is the constancy, getting back to that vertical call, then always, invariably, inevitably, it then shines horizontally through everything else we do. And what is that horizontal aspect all about? It's about our neighbor. So everything we do at the end of the day is going to lead to the result of the light of Christ shining upon our neighbor. Thus, if we reduce our daily activity, our work, as just being about frustration, you know, something we just want to get over with, we are robbing ourselves of the deeper insight that frankly comes out of the theology of the cross to recognize an inherent value and worth precisely because what we do is connected to the neighbor some way, somehow. And maybe that supervisor is someone you struggle working under, or maybe that coworker is really, really irritating, or maybe you think that what you're producing isn't very valuable, but it always involves an opportunity to honor, to love, and to serve. Those are the things that are invaluable. So much so that when we conducted in faith by the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, these are things that are going to be echoed for eternity in heaven, for our good works follow those who are in Christ, according to Revelation 14, 13. All things are sanctified by the word of God in prayer. How does God use the circumstances of work in the sanctification of the Christian? Well, work is a blessing because, as Bonhoeffer pointed out, it puts us in a position to forget about ourselves for a change. <laughs> it's where we, we lose ourselves in a greater cause. Bonhoeffer described that work becomes a remedy against the indolence and sloth of the flesh. It's a liberation from self. I elaborate by saying it's a hammer of the law to crush our self-centeredness in life. God's called to be productive, to be responsible, to do what he's called us to do, what he's commanded us to do. When we get into it, we're blessed because we start to get out of our hyper-individualism, our self-centeredness. We're practically forced to when we're enveloped in our God-given labor. So if we think of it that way, and get back to that ratio that God makes so clear in the book of Genesis, his six-to-one ratio, you know, six days we're going to work, one day we're going to rest, well, work must be pretty important then. 
I'm not talking about becoming a workaholic, but just simply be aware that this work is something given to us by God. And if we look at it that way, as a blessing to help crucify our self-centeredness, work takes on a dignity that it never had before. And this is all through the Word of God, which informs us about his gift of work. You say that sanctification is saved. What do you mean? Yeah, when we talk about saving sanctification, it is the experience of what Christ upon us and Christ through us does for us. All of these remind us at the end of the day that Christ himself is our sanctification. The light of the world, who through holy baptism makes us the light of the world. This saves us, not only in setting us apart in Christ, who is our forgiveness, but it saves us from a life that would otherwise lead us astray so that we would only serve ourselves. Sanctification, understood in the right way according to the light of Christ, saves us from that sinful self-absorption that we talked about early in the front part of the book, that spiritual navel-gazing, the spiritual constant temperature checking of my piety and spirituality, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for sanctification in all the wrong places. It saves us from that. It saves us from the miserable life of living for self, and it saves us to know that in Christ, we know what life is truly about. It is about serving other people. And when we live that way, everything changes. We're free now to look at our whole life in a different way. At the very end of the book, I bring out these five things that we can celebrate about all of our horizontal calls. Christ makes our work one of our calls, and it's therefore holy. Its status does not depend on human perception, not even our own. Thank God. Secondly, Christ places us to shine his light upon a work environment confronted by the world's darkness. And the light in the Christian is greater than that darkness. We get to shine in that environment that may not look very attractive or savory, but we get to shine. And thirdly, Christ has given us his life and offers a new light to those the Christian works for and works with in life. The Christian is strategically placed to share Christ's light to his neighbor in order that his neighbor might see the unconditional love of Christ. And fourthly, Christ permits a cross upon the Christian through their work. When properly understood, that cross is used by God to cause us to learn to depend on God, not less, but more. And in this way, we learn to crucify our flesh. And finally, Christ reminds us that we do not see what we want to see in our day-to-day work and activity, but he also reminds us that we walk by faith and not by sight. These are the practical ways that we're saved by sanctification, drawing us out of ourselves, drawing us to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ as we live as Christians in this world, to know that the light of Jesus Christ shines through us, not so that we would pat ourselves on the back, so that we could share Christ's light with others and take true joy in seeing our neighbors that we serve benefit from that light. This is the best way to live. It gets out of ourselves. It kills the sinful nature. It turns away from the old man, and it holds on to Christ, who is our life. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is senior pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California, and author of The Issues Etc., a book of the month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. Dr. Espinosa, thanks. Thank you so much, my brother. Have a good day. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Dr. Reed Lessing about a history of the land of Israel, and we'll look forward to the first Sunday in Advent according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. 
Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.